Welcome to the Dark Academicals, the podcast where we delve into the mythos of dark academia one week at a time. I'm Sarah Purnell. And I'm Sophie Waters. And today we're looking at our Dark Academia adjacent title, which is Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Wall. When Charles Ryder joins Oxford University in 1923, he falls into a life of parties, drinking and causing mischief with a new group of friends, but especially Sebastian Flight. When Sebastian invites Charles back to his ancestral home of Brideshead, a lifelong entanglement with the house, the family and Sebastian and his sister Julia begins. Brideshead Revisited contemplates religion, love, family and friendship between the wars. This is an interesting one. Isn't yeah. it? We, yeah. we we struggled a little bit with this one. But we before before we uh we should probably do do the usual admin before we uh get into that, getting ahead of myself already. Yeah. So we have content warnings for alcoholism, racial slurs, addiction, death of a parent, war, I guess. Does that count as a content warning? <laughs> yeah. I mean we never we never really see him in battle. He's just kind of Moving people around. I suppose, but, yeah. Yeah. I guess that is uh, connotations, isn't it? Mm. Also, a spoiler warning. We will be talking about the novel in full. I don't really know if anything is could anything count to... as a spoiler. Cause is Maybe there a... towards the end. I guess Julia. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are spoiler, spoiler warnings here. So if um, you haven't quite finished, um, finish up the book and come back. You can also sign up to our mailer, which releases every fortnight alongside every episode, and that can be found at the Dark Academicals Book Club. Substack.com. So, Brideshead is a book that I've wanted to read for a really, really long time. It's one of those modern classics that I feel like has always been on like the periphery of my kind of eternal, never-ending list of classics I would like to read in my life. Yeah. Um. So that's partly why I suggested it. Yeah, it's always been a book that I've wanted to read also. Um, partly because I haven't seen the film, but I've seen like trailers and bits of the film and it feels like a good aesthetic and that it would be something that I'd like. Yeah, definitely. And Jeremy Irons is in it. So, yeah. you know, that's an instant point in its favour. However, Jeremy Irons reading Brideshead, not so sure. Oh, you really struggled with the narration of the audiobook, didn't you? Yeah, I don't know also, I don't know if it's part of, the, part of my problem is that Jeremy Irons is Scar. Right. And then once you once you think about that too much. <laughs> I can see how that might in- infringe on your experience a little bit. <laughs> He's actually an evil lion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Plot twist. <laughs> Yeah, I, I read it um, on my Kindle, so I didn't have any of those issues, but I still did struggle with it. And I, mm. my major complaint is how long the chapters were. Yeah. Because obviously, like, a Kindle book tells you, like, based on your reading speed, how long it's going to take you to finish a chapter. One of the chapters in the middle, 47 minutes. And I am a fast reader. <clears throat> I think, for me, though... Also, it was just the the complete. It's just devoid of any kind of direction. Yeah, it did feel a little bit aimless. Yeah, um, I can't help if wonder that was deliberate though, because no. neither did Charles or Sebastian. No. 
No, I refuse to believe that 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 was that was the point. <laughs> Zero authorial intent here. No. Okay. <laughs> because he's got plenty of other authorial intent that's like very deliberate, and I don't know that just. I just didn't enjoy this book. Okay. And it makes me really sad. Yeah, I I didn't dislike it, but I don't think I could comfortably say that I liked it. Mm. It was fine. There were parts of it that I was really interested in and there were other parts that I was just like, can we just move on now, please? I quite enjoyed like the bit that was like, is it like 10 years later? Yeah. When they're on the boat. Yeah, I then... liked the boat. The bits about how he's got this this job with painting buildings and stuff. I quite like that bit. Mm. And then, yeah. <laughs> that was it, that tiny bit in the middle. Just that bit. <laughs> that bit on the boat, really enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I felt like I was missing a lot of nuance from it because I think this is one of those novels that you would benefit so much from studying it. Yeah, I I, think so. Yeah, I just feel like, even as I was reading and I was like, I feel like that's important, but I don't know why. And I feel like that's important, but I don't know why. And I feel like those things connect to each other, but how? It's like my brain couldn't quite make the connection on its own. I think as well, going back to kind of what you say about studying it, it's also because it's not written for our time. So you kind of, you're missing a lot of the context, I think, which yeah. would make that make sense. Yeah, that's true. Because I think it was published in 1945. Yeah. I believe. So I think that's quite interesting, actually, that he was writing about the war before the war was even over, really. Because if it was published in 45, it would have been finished. Yeah. You know, before the end of the war. Interesting side note there. <laughs> Another reason we chose this book for a Dark Academia adjacent title is that it's an early example of a campus novel, which is kind of a, a subgenre of um, fiction that's often seen as a precursor to Dark Academia. Yeah. Um. So it it has the the campus setting, the academic vibe, the you know like that that microcosm of life on a university campus. And it was it's also recommended in a lot of lists, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of dark academia lists. Um so yeah, we wanted to give it a whirl and see what we thought based on our tropes of what makes a dark academia title. And well we did. And unfortunately it's a whirl that I can never get back. <laughs> <laughs> At least it read fairly fast. Yeah, I mean, I I listened to it on 1.5 in the end. That's really fast for you. Yeah. I usually, the fastest I usually got to is 1.2. Yeah, I'm usually a 1.3. I I was like, no, come on, Jeremy, we need to speed this along. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Jeremy. (laughs) He's a great narrator, though. I will give you that. I would probably listen to other books if he's narrated them if mm. i can not imagine scar <laughs> reading it you have to exile scar first yeah <laughs> so our first trope of dark academia is a higher education setting often on campus and usually elite or exclusive in some way sort yes of. but no <laughs> it's all in hindsight isn't it the yeah. campus bits and honestly, I think lots of the important action doesn't even take place 
at Oxford. No, I mean, Oxford seems to be just the 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 mode to be able to meet Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it establishes their positions, it establishes their relationship, their dynamic, and also I think their like Charles and Sebastian's position in in their families and in their social status and social group. Yeah, rather than being the setting being a vehicle. No, yeah. the setting is a vehicle for their relationship and yeah, the story yeah, yeah. rather than it being a part of the story, which is what we usually see in Dark Academia. Yeah, it's more circumstantial. It's like, well, they're the right age and that's where they would have gone rather than it being um, <clears throat> like the, the the main reason of the story is it's all set at Oxford or mm. Eton or whatever. So. Yeah, and I think as well, like there's no... I oh, know we'll talk about we'll talk about this a bit later, but there's no like the there's no academic grounding in it. They just happen to be there. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, for a higher education <laughs> setting, maybe. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I mean, technically, technically I suppose. yeah, but in the dark academia sense, not really. No. And I think the same goes for secret societies. There's not really any because they're not involved in the school enough, are they? No. I mean, there is obviously that that sense of it's not a secret society, but I suppose if you're looking at it from a like a precursor point of view, there is that sense that you know Charles wants to be well, it doesn't necessarily want to be, but like would rather be enfolded within Sebastian and Sebastian's world, yeah, rather than his world, like his family and his mm. kind of lot. He'd rather be with Sebastian and that, or oh, does he? Because I don't even know if he likes Sebastian, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I think he loved Sebastian, but he didn't but always didn't like him. Yeah. Because I think they are very separate. And he even tells Julia, doesn't he, that he loved... He did love Sebastian. And he, I thought it was really oddly worded because he said he was the forerunner. Yeah. Isn't it... it there's this really, like... Who is it who says it? Was it Cordelia who says... Something about, yeah, something about Sebastian being the forerunner for his relationship with, spoiler alert, with Julia. But then doesn't he then think, well, isn't every relationship a forerunner for your next one? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. But he he also says at one point that he didn't really take notice of Julia until he realised how much she looked like Sebastian. Yeah. And he suddenly went, oh, yeah. which is so creepy. But I suppose because he, I mean, it's it's one of those books where homosexuality is heavily implied, mentioned, but not explicitly on the page. Yeah. Um. So it's almost like a way that he could explore his feelings for Sebastian in a heteronormative way. Yeah, definitely. With Julia. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's just I, I just found it really weirdly worded at that point when it was yeah. like I, I I kind of fancy you now because you really look like your brother. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Which when you think of it on like that kind of like sibling rivalry thing is it's just weird. Yeah. It's very odd. But I guess it is it a stretch to say like that that world of Brideshead, that the Mount Mains 
are like their own little secret society, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like he want he kind of wanted to be in with that rather than with his own family who are pretty atrocious. Disinterested entirely. Yeah. yeah. I think as well he was reaching for that status, wasn't he? Yeah. Because later on in the novel when um Lord Mountmain Mountmain? I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Mountmain? Is that right? You think I I don't know, and I've heard you say it. I can't I can't hear Jeremy saying it, so <laughs> <laughs> We'll go with it. When Lord Mountmain is dying and he's considering actually handing over Brideshead to Juliet and Charles instead of the oldest son, Lord Brideshead. Or Bridey. Brady. Brady. Um and Charles is like, Yeah, I want that. Like that's March. that's for me. Yeah. March main. March main. Yeah. Okay. I was I was close enough. Yeah. Only read a whole four hundred pages, you know, it's fine. Still get the name wrong. Yeah. All good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So old Gothic architecture it comes hand in hand with Oxford. It does, but it's not, and I mean, I suppose Brideshead as well to an extent, but it's not, um, it doesn't have a gothic edge to it. No. Like, it's not through a gothic-y lens, I guess. We did actually, like, try and pick it through in the novel, like, what kind of building Brideshead is, because it feels like a real mismatch. So it was basically, it was a castle... And they took it apart and they moved it and they rebuilt it in a valley. Which is absolutely nuts. <laughs> Even for, I guess it would have been 18th century, yeah. wasn't it? Um, so it is, it's a Baroque. It's a Baroque country house. So, which is yeah, quite I- handy because thinking about all of the buildings we explored in Germany last year, mm. which are very Baroque, it kind <coughs> of... It's a really vivid picture of what that house must be like. And it's a really different vibe to the Gothic, isn't it? Yeah. It's that, that bright opulence. It's just like dripping money everywhere. Whereas I think the Gothic can be dripping money or it can be falling apart. Yeah. It's a very different social vibe, I think. Yeah, I think Gothic is. I mean, it can be money, but it's never in a. It's not in a gaudy way. It'll be in a. Yes, the materials are expensive, but they still kind of look a little bit somber. Yeah. It's got those undertones, hasn't it? Yeah. Whereas, where Brideshead has, kind of, sadness in it, it's not. It's not a Gothic. Feeling. I don't think. Mm. Hmm. So sort of. Yeah, yeah. Technically with um Oxford, by association. But, yeah. <laughs> on a technicality. <laughs> <laughs> so next we have a preoccupation with classical studies, Latin, Greek literature and philosophy. I think the preoccupation here was with religion and theology. Yeah. But but not in an academic way. No, and not a... even necessarily for Charles. Not until right near the end does it really kind of... He he makes note of 
religion. Like he's almost like because he's this isn't isn't he like agnostic throughout yeah. pretty yeah. much all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's very aware of other people's religion. Yeah, because he he doesn't agree with it. He thinks yeah. it's ridiculous. And the March Mains are Catholic. Yeah. Um, and there's that real clash there. I found that really interesting at the end, though, how it really showcased, like, the damage that this religion, this belief, the the cultural pressures of being Catholic basically ruined the happiness of two people. Yeah. Yeah, he still ended up buying into it a tiny bit. Mm. He still ended up finding comfort in it. And again, that's something that I really wanted to unpick in a class. Yeah, because... I just, I mean, it's part of it because of when it's set, because of these great upheavals, like it's during, well, it, it's the book set after World War One, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then yeah, it's between the wars. Part of, yeah, and so seeking comfort in something bigger than you that can look after you wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah. And especially with um, the death of Lord Marchmain as yeah. well. Um, it's that comfort in those final moments. And also, like, the the reassurance for the family as well that actually that person is going to be looked after after death as well, I think. Mm. Um, especially when there's so much death around them at the moment at that point. Because you, you kind of, like, it's really coming up to the war then, isn't it? Yeah. Like, because it... I think Charles is saying, oh, he's on the wait list and stuff. Um, wait list is the wrong word. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I'm on the wait list, just waiting to be called forward. Reserves, is that, is that yeah, the right word? I think so. <laughs> um, yeah. So... My number gets called next. <laughs> <laughs> Call my raffle ticket. Um, but I suppose, I mean, there is, it's not even, again, it's not a preoccupation, but the subject, if you had to pick one, would be art. I oh, think. yeah. Like definitely. as an actual subject, because that's what he ends up studying and obviously then mm-hmm. works in that field. But yeah, he um, becomes an artist. But yeah, I think definitely like the philosophy of religion mm-hmm. and how it affects people socially mm-hmm. um, seems to be like a thread through this book. Yeah. And you you kind of see it from so many different angles as well, don't you? Yeah. Um, I have to admit, I don't really know much about Catholicism, honestly. No, I don't know a massive amount. It was quite interesting to learn all of the um, traditions of it, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Then we have murder. Hmm. And for the first time, I think, (laughs) on the podcast... That's a no. No murder. I literally feel like that is the first time, isn't it? Yeah. Which I think is so. There's almost always a murder. Literally always. I'm gonna have a quick scroll through our catalogue and uh I feel like the only place there wouldn't be a murder would be in the adjacent ones, but I think there's murder or death at least in all of them. Like suspicious death, not just Yeah, because we had Gatsby. We had Dorian, Dorian Gray. Gray. Definitely death in that one. Um, Song of Achilles. Plenty of death and murder. Yeah, Interview of the Vampire. So, Plenty of death and murder. <laughs> so yeah, every single other book we've looked at has been a yes for murder. 
Wow. Brideshead is a landmark novel on the Dark Academicals. <laughs> it is yeah. murder-free. Unless, does this have the most murder? Ooh, do go on. Just because it's set during the war. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't I think if we were in the war, <laughs> but we don't really... No, we don't actually... We're not in... I know, obviously, like, when Charles kind of introduces the novel and closes it out, he is a captain. He is Captain Ryder at that point. But he's just leading people around and taking them on a train and to, to Brideshead at that point. He's not... Yeah. He's not actually in... In the fighting, I guess. But no. I think what you do notice, this hasn't got anything to do with murder, but it almost feels like a a death because just the the way the the gap that Se- Sebastian leaves towards the end. Do you know what I mean? Like the the mm. because he's not present on page. Yeah, that's that's what I meant when I said I felt a bit shortchanged. Yeah. Because I I obviously didn't expect some, like, big, full-circle, miraculous redemption for Sebastian. But I still kind of expected him to come home. He just kind of disappears, doesn't he? And... Yeah, and everyone just seems to forget about him. Yeah. There's no, like, there's none of the, the longing or the the hurt, the betrayal that he's, you know, gone off. There's none. There's nothing lingering after no, he even, goes even charles doesn't seem to think about him or even mention him that much no for like someone who was supposed to be his like great love like his first great love yeah it just i just felt like sebastian was done a disservice yeah with that because i, I understand obviously you know he got to this point where he um He's an alcoholic and he it was his family that and the pressures of being in his family that drove him to alcoholism. Yeah. And so he he went away from them so he could do that without interruption. And it was kind of but still supported by the money of his family mm. and the position of his family. But yeah, I just just that felt unsatisfying to me possibly very a realist um ending for him in terms of like him physically not coming back but uh yeah emotionally I just, lacking yeah I think. I think there could have been more ruminations because charles does like to ruminate oh he does oh he does yeah and it's almost like he's just shut that's that, that part out of his mm-hmm. life altogether yeah he's just gone oh no i fancy julia now yeah let's snap that back into place unless that is a deliberate thing again like did he have to shut him out in order to live his life away from the march mains once he left the house that last time i suppose but i suppose but also still- i suppose as well if you look at it from it's a, it's a strange kind of um, not timeline, but like when you're looking at the uh, the main action of the book is all flashback or like reminiscence, isn't it? So yeah. 
I suppose the act of coming back to Brideshead has made him rethink everything with Sebastian. Mm. In a way. But then if you follow that, you would expect then those later periods without Mm. Sebastian, he would have more feelings and thoughts about Sebastian because he was, you know, the kickoff for that. Yeah. If that makes sense. It's almost like, it is almost like... um, he literally switches to the other twin and you can all, you can pretty much see it in the book because he mm. basically says doesn't he say something like oh this is where where julia comes into the story yeah literally i think it's like part two or something yeah yeah like at the very beginning of it yeah odd but it's an but yeah. odd structure <laughs> no no murder no murder um i don't really think there's a dark moody and or haunting vibe in the dark academia tradition anyway no either like it's definitely a bit moody because sebastian and charles are pretty moody yeah but outside of that outside of like personality traits (laughs) like there's not an atmosphere of it is there no it has its own atmosphere but it's not a dark academia one no no, it's it's not a dark. Academia I can't one. put my finger on it, but like I know what you mean, though. It it has something that's almost recognisable. It's uh, maybe it's just that whole. I don't know what the word is. It's almost like a romantic with a capital R kind of yeah feel. Like oh, a, no, uh, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, and it's that that looking through a lens into the past, isn't it? Yeah, that comes into the capital R romantic, and also, I think knowing as well that we are between the wars in a big old english country house you know it's kind of like the failing days of that isn't it yeah and that has a very specific feel in like um classic literature specifically english classic literature i think Mm. that has a very definitive vibe doesn't it yeah it's that like impending doom but not in a dark academic way no hero worship of a particular figure or author is definitely there though because charles worships sebastian at the beginning definitely at the beginning like that doesn't continue obviously (laughs) but at, at the beginning it's that is a very dark academia hero worship, isn't it? It's like this this boy is richer and cooler and so much more free than I will ever be. Yeah. I want to be like that and I'm going to ingratiate myself into that position so I get to experience that too. Yeah. I mean, he takes any and every opportunity to be at Sebastian's side. Yeah, literally. Like, he doesn't even say at one point, like, he left Christmas with his uncle halfway through the day to come to Brighthead <laughs> to join them for Christmas or something. Yeah, and it's that bit where Sebastian writes him a letter, making it sound like he was, like, not long for this world. <laughs> yeah. But then doesn't even Julia say something like, well, no one else would come, and he knew that you would. Yeah. Kind of. So, I don't know. I never... I think maybe when I... What, what I was saying earlier about I wasn't sure if if Charles really likes Sebastian I think maybe what I mean is Sebastian I think it's more that you can kind of see Sebastian almost taking advantage of Charles and his availability yeah definitely I think that's very true he's he's very conveniently positioned to be at Sebastian's beck and call isn't he yeah 
And I imagine Sebastian knew as well the, you know, all of these things that he had at his disposal were things that Charles wanted. And yeah. Sebastian by could give them to him by forcing him to spend time with him. <laughs> but without forcing, because he didn't need to force him. <laughs> He'd just be like, shall we? He'd be like, yep, I'm ready, let's go. You know, <laughs> like no hesitation there. But that also very quickly dripped off once he almost became a member of the family, didn't he? Yeah. And he began to see, see like, everything, you know, mm. there, all the secrets, all of the the imperfections kind of shattered his uh, rose-tinted glasses a bit. Yeah. I think Sebastian tried to shield him from that for as long as he could as well, because I think Sebastian knew that that was going to happen. Yeah. Because he doesn't want him to meet his family, does he? For no. a really long time. And he like actively avoids it. Yeah. yeah. I and think it kind of leads into like old money, mm-hmm. which collides with new money or no money, doesn't it? Those two things are kind of linked. Yeah. This. Yeah, I think so. I found it hard to kind of pinpoint where Charles sits on that scale. I mean, I think they're obviously not as well off as... Sebastian's family Mm. but they're definitely not doing bad for themselves no because I actually looked up I can't remember how much it was in in the um, actual text but it was like eight and a half thousand or something that he gave him for his like allowance annual allowance and I looked up what that would be today and that was like 42 grand (laughs) so he gave him 42 grand allowance for his year at Oxford like (laughs) (laughs) You know, like yeah, they're think, doing all right. Yeah, I think I think Charles's family are just more stricter on what they supply him with. Right. Yeah. I think they're just more because even more his dad doesn't. It. Yeah, I think his dad even says like financial. Isn't like financial issues have never been have never been a problem for me. Yeah. When Charles is like, I've got no money left, and he's like, Well, you spent it, so yeah. Because <laughs> his dad doesn't really do anything, does he? No. He just stays at home. But he doesn't He doesn't work. He doesn't, you know, he's, he just spends time in his office, really, doesn't he? Yeah. In his study. Whereas you can see the Marchmains frittering money. Yeah. And the upkeep of these incredible houses and the staff and all of these um, things that obviously Charles's family doesn't have mm. to deal with. I mean, it's just, it's similar to what we what we read in um the ruins really isn't it last yeah. last episode because it's even though it's very different time period same kind of problems in that they're literally frittering money away trying to keep this image alive mm, this outdated old english um thing that doesn't exist anymore yeah yeah I think that's hammered home as well when we go back um, in in the epilogue, when we go back to Brideshead as the um, as the army takes over the building. Yeah. And you know things have been ripped apart. Part of the house has been closed off. Things have been sold off, but all of the old priceless furniture is squirrelled upstairs, locked away. Yeah. Even though it's it's you know. Once they leave the war, there's not really going to be anyone kind of in the market for that, you know, because it's it's not important at that point. They're in a war. 
I think it's very interesting that they they fence off the um, fountain, which mm. is uh, kind of a it's a very it's a very key kind of symbolic um, piece of sort of furniture, but like uh, uh, decoration, yeah. architecture. I it don't has know what the word is. Symbolic importance, for, yeah, for the book, and then you see it. It, they try to protect it, but soldiers are still just throwing all their rubbish in it over the fence. Yeah, it's there's there's no like there's no respect for that system anymore. No, it's th- those lines have been blurred forever, and it's not coming back, kind of thing. Yeah, and I think as well the idea that Charles goes to so many because he's an architectural artist. And he gets called to houses like the day before they get demolished. These old grand English houses um, to preserve them in time before they're destroyed for something more practical, something more easy to maintain. Yeah. You know, to actually house, you know, uh, you know, make a neighborhood to house scores of families instead of one in this building they can't <laughs> yeah and it's interesting afford. isn't it when he has that exhibition how he's kind of got all of these um paintings on show and mm. you'd think that it would be something that the english upper class would be really into yeah and they hate it yeah it's really interesting isn't it because mm. that that exhibition he has it's um his paintings from spending time out in South America, isn't it? Mm. And I really enjoyed that. It was, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was a comment about, oh, but it's a very English perspective on that, isn't it? Yeah. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. It's such a, like, a really clever spin on kind of the idea of bringing home the, air quotes, exotic or... um kind of trying to take on something that is not yours culturally and it's like that you can't shake that i guess it is colonial isn't it that colonial um impression of like well i'm gonna make it better even if it's completely unconscious yeah and i think it's also interesting because you know there is nothing more british than being a bit colonial (laughs) Um, and i you know i don't say that with any pride yeah but historically there's nothing more british than being a bit colonial but faced with it in such a almost it's not obvious but like in a very blatant way and people go oh i don't like it it makes everyone very uncomfortable yeah yeah and even kind of like when he goes out when Charles goes out to see Sebastian for the last time in Morocco, just the way he talks about um, the locals and the local town, it's it's that very clear imperial mindset of, oh, we could do this way better. Yeah. Um, even after he's, you know, made this show of travelling around South America and respecting all of their traditions and living, living out in the wild, you know, it's it's a very hard thing to unlearn. Yeah. When you've been brought up in that um that environment and that kind of idea of what makes you special 
And Charles hasn't even really in the same way as Sebastian. Yet it's Sebastian that fully takes on everything. Yeah. About that culture, isn't it? I think it's just that's partly because of Sebastian's character of... um, And on the one hand, he's got this refusal to kind of accept his um, adult responsibilities. Mm. But on on the flip side of that it means he kind of maintains this kind of like child like acceptance and innocence about mm-hmm. everything yeah so he's a lot more open i think probably also you know he is a bit of an outsider because of his sexuality yeah so he is just already more accepting of people that are different than him yeah I think that's that's demonstrated really differently between him and say like Anthony. Yeah. Um Anthony is very flamboyant, he's very open, but he's he's just an he's an immediate part of society because he's fun. Yeah. And he kind of he keeps enough of what makes him, you know, respectable in society. But with that, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. He sort of still does it in a way that's acceptable that yeah people are okay with it's, it's kind of that oh you know what anthony's like kind of thing yeah you know um he so, still he still kind of buys into the whole system still mm. it's almost like he's he's he seems a lot more content with how the system works and working with the system whereas sebastian is not sebastian is not willing to figure out how to make it work for him Whereas Anthony excels at that. Yeah. And Charles just accepts his position. Very much so. You know, it's very much a, it is what it is, I'll deal with it as we go along. And I think that's something he really comes to regret, doesn't it? Mm. Doesn't he? So it's, I think it's in the, is it in the epilogue? Where he's talking to Hooper, who's one of um, the soldiers in... In his... He's like one of the new, isn't he like the new uh, commanding officer or something? Yeah, unit, some, unit something like that. Or something, yeah. um, and he's like, I'm middle-aged, loveless, homeless or something like that, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think coming back to Brideshead made him go, oh, this is what I lost because mm. I didn't reach for it kind of thing almost. Wow, that went off topic, didn't it? <laughs> well, we can move on to whether as a literary device. Um, I don't I don't, I don't think whether... so. It always felt like summer when I was reading it. Yeah. Even when it was mentioning Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I you're think right. I think it's just that kind of uh because we spend so much time with like Sebastian or Sebastian's family or and Charles kind of experiences a kind of, for the most part, anyway, a kind of freedom and mm. when he's with them. So I suppose it's got that kind of summer freedom vibe. Does that yeah. make sense? No, definitely, definitely. <laughs> Whereas winter, if you're winter, always feels so like closed off and yeah, isolated. But you never kind of get any effect from winter. Mm. It's never really mentioned. Does it snow? Who knows? Is it raining? Don't know. <laughs> but it just feels like perpetual summer. But yeah. I suppose that again, that's like a looking through the lens of retrospect, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where yeah. you don't necessarily always remember the negatives 
in the same way. Yeah. So it, it, it has that rosy, rose-tinted yeah. Yeah. thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think as well, I don't know about, I don't know whether this is just me, but when I think of like English country houses, that immediately is summer to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, there's just something, something about them, isn't there? Yeah. So then finally, we have underdeveloped social skills or the protagonist is portrayed as an outsider. Um, uh, I don't think, think they have underdeveloped social skills just because of how they were brought up. Like, yeah. But they are outsiders. Yeah. In their own way. Yeah, you don't necessarily feel it in the same sense that you do in something like the secret history no but it's more of a general acceptance that they're outsiders rather than a desperate kind of beat to get in except for charles at the very beginning oh yeah 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 but after that kind of that buzz has, has lifted um but, I mean, Sebastian specifically puts himself on the outside, doesn't he? That's yeah. where he wants to be. He doesn't want to be a part of that. Mm. And I think that's, that that kind of links with like what we were saying about religion as well because Catholic faith says that you can't divorce and, yeah. uh, and if Julia had gone ahead... And then married Charles, who is divorced. She would be essentially exiled from the Catholic faith, faith, wouldn't she? Like the women get, not as... done, get done so dirty in this book. I mean, don't they always? <laughs> I do. You know what? I was thinking that last night. I started reading Iron Widow, and I was like, I need to have a break from reading books <laughs> about women who are just constantly shit on. Yeah, I was I like, mean, it's also, so hard to read. I was, but also, good luck finding one. Mm. Exactly. Like, do they exist? I know. <laughs> I'm in it. I'm currently having a bit of a romance binge at the minute. But still, I find issue with women's representation in them every time. Yeah. Like, it's because it's like even in like Ali Hazelwood's novels, it's an actual plot point <laughs> that like <laughs> women in STEM struggle to hold their own because it's such a patriarchal system and like just i just want them to be equal citizens please but they're not and we're not so good luck trying to find a book that doesn't touch on it somewhere somehow i know it's impossible whether inadvertently or advertently (laughs) yeah you're either angry because the representation in the book is poo or you're angry because it's the, too accurate. <laughs> it's too accurate, and the issues being raised are uncomfortable and need to be talked about. But my gosh, just give me a break. <laughs> it just—it's so tiring, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, enough of my uh, my reading <laughs> feelings uh, segues. <laughs> I can't even remember what I was saying. Oh, oh the the women in the book and Julia about yeah. getting married. Um. Yeah, so she she would have made herself an outsider from her faith and her family by marrying the man that she loved. Yeah. And she chose not to do that. But, I mean, for women, 
like especially you know she's in a she would be looked after by her family whereas to stand with charles could mean a much more uncomfortable way of living yeah whereas for charles there's not really that that many consequences no for julia she stands to lose a lot more she does because the woman always loses a lot more yeah i thought that was a really interesting contrast actually with bridie's wife so she was a much she was um a a sailor's wife i think and was this she already had three children didn't she is that yeah and her husband died so she was a widow and married bridie and there was she's desperately trying to adopt this new station and there's that that whole section about her being so upset when lord marchmain changes the will so that bridie doesn't get bride's head yeah and she loses this like enormous jump in um circumstance and by bragging about this to her you know her neighborhood in london at the time and all her neighbors she can't go back there now because they'll know that they'll think that she either lied or they'll know that it didn't fall through and that would put her on the outside and that in that situation makes her very vulnerable Mm. and then and charles's wife as well um yeah you know he's he's completely disinterested in her Mm -hmm. in in the children uses her infidelity as an excuse to, for him to crack on with his own, like, infidelities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there are no consequences for him. But for her, she still has to protect and look after the children. Mm-hmm. You know, she still has to somehow maintain a certain kind of, like, image for yep. the sake of her children. Like he goes off and she knows he's having an affair and yet she kind of has to be like, yep, cool. Yeah. And this I is mean, after he has swanned off to South America for two years to paint. Yeah. And even like with Rex as well. Like he... Oh, I hate Rex. <laughs> so Julia is trying to keep their relationship sort of on the down low so that she can try and somehow figure out how this is going to work with her mm-hmm. family, with her religion. And he goes, well, you forced me then to have a mistress. Yeah. Like, and she doesn't want to sleep with him before marriage because, you know, she's religious. Yeah. And he's like, well, what do you expect me to do? Keep it in your pants, dude. Yeah, exactly. But because there's, she can't do anything without threatening her position. It's, yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'd love to go, oh, but, you know, it's a classic novel. It's not like that anymore. But that would be just not the truth. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it's only 60. No, it's not even 60. It's 80 years old. And (laughs) how much has really changed for women? Really? That's a whole other podcast, that is. (laughs) Yeah. Right, that was our last trope. So that there is something I would like to talk about. Yeah. We need to talk about the bear. The bear. We need to talk about Aloysius. Aloysius. I have an interesting fact about Aloysius. Yeah. So in the film version, mm-hmm. he was portrayed by the director's bear. 
and he was the director's bear was called Delicatessen. <laughs> and I think Delicatessen is probably the best name for a bear ever. Yeah, I think he definitely wins the crown for that. That's pretty damn cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a name. I feel yeah. like I want to watch the film now. Yeah, me too. I think, I feel like uh, Brighthead Revisited probably lends itself better to film. I think because there'll be a lot of visual... Um, is it, I don't know. I just feel like it's very... <laughs> I feel like it's very visual rather than... <laughs> Fair enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Cinematic. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Definitely. If We're also recording on a Sunday and I feel like it's a Sunday afternoon film. Yeah. Preferably if it wasn't hotter than the surface of the sun. Yeah. But, you know, kind of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Aloysius is the teddy bear that Sebastian carries around with him. Everywhere. Yeah. All the time. Even at university. Um, and it's like, it is that kind of very, very forceful representation of how Sebastian's refusal to give up yeah. his youth and innocent and grow up. He's also a bit of a, a bit of a moral, almost like a moral compass because... Aloysius has these kind of uh, scruples and feelings about certain behaviours. Yes. Um, he's almost like the, not the, ex- I don't want to say the excuse for, but like he'll say, oh, I can't, I can't do that. Aloysius wouldn't agree with that. Or, he is Jiminy Cricket. He's he Jiminy is, <laughs> he is Sebastian's conscience. Yeah. Um, interestingly, St. Aloysius Saint Aloysius, even, is the patron saint of youth in Catholicism. Hmm. I, d- I didn't know that off the top of my head. I absolutely looked it up, just in case you were wondering. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. It? And it's quite funny, like, because at first I was like, what the hell is this? But once you actually look into it, you're like, yeah, that's not actually that old, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you would like to raise? Um. No, I think I've talked about... I really wanted to talk about the representation of women. I think I've done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, no, I don't think so. There is something else I wanted to mention, and that's the tortoise that Julia is gifted for Christmas by Rex. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Julia is gifted a gilded tortoise. Literally, this is a quote from the book. It was a small tortoise with Julia's initials set in diamonds in the living shell. And it's it's literally a fleeting paragraph. Mm. You learn about it and then it's never mentioned again. And this this whole conversation that they have is around, you know, someone, I can't remember who, but someone says, oh, that must have hurt, you know? Mm. And this focus on that quote, in the living shell. Yeah. And someone's like, oh, well, they can't feel pain. They don't feel anything. Mm. And then (laughs) this doesn't kind of help with the point I'm making, but it made me go, what the hell? So Sam Grass, who is like a family friend, Mm. wanted to know if another tortoise can be put in the shell when it dies. And I just... Like, everything about that was just, like, the utter disregard yeah, for anyone that's not them, that's not in their, 
Yeah. Like, does it feel pain? No, it doesn't feel pain. It's a silly little It's just tortoise. an animal, you know? Yeah. And not even, a, you know, a dog or a cat, like a regular pet that you'd have in the house. Like, this is... It's just... It was a really powerful punch of, like, actually remember that even if you do feel things for these characters, they don't really feel for anything else. No. You know? Which I thought was really clever. Mm. And impactful as well. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I was a little bit concerned at the beginning of this book where I think is it Hooper who makes a comment about, um, well, an atrocious comment really about how he feels that Hitler was right about people with mental health issues. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh no, is this going to be like this throughout? But luckily it's not. I would have struggled really, really hard with this. If yeah, there's a lot of those instances, but there are quite a few clangers, aren't there? Really? Yeah, there's definitely lots of um, racist comments, yeah. racial slurs, um, and obviously classism and classist slurs, and all of the continued misogyny. Yeah. Um, but it's not a lot of the time. It's quite insidious. It's not necessarily as blatant i'm not saying that makes it any better no, no, no. but it's it, it's a lot easier to digest and to um read when it's not a direct slur or a direct hateful which, comment which makes it even more dangerous yeah oh no definitely yeah. but if it was like i mean to be fair if it was page on page like awful comments and slurs and stuff then it probably wouldn't um it wouldn't be the the book that it is yeah but at the same time i think because it is it's a classic it's of its time Mm, that that protects it doesn't it (laughs) it It, does unfortunately it's that kind of cloud of well it's a 60 year old novel but that that doesn't mean it was okay 60 years ago why can't i do the maths on when the war was it was 80 years ago (laughs) um like that doesn't make it okay like no People haven't only just in the last 80 years earned the right to be treated equally. It's not a new thing. Um, No, but I suppose also the difference is 80 years ago, books were still being written by people who are a lot more better off than... Yes. Rich old white men. Has a lot changed in publishing since then? Mm. Depends what (laughs) genre. Depends what genre we're in, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for literary fiction like this... No, mm, not really. Not really. <laughs> but yeah, that, I just had to talk about the tortoise because it was, it just you know, like some you get those scenes that just stick in your brain. Mm. That was one of them. It would be no different than me hammering a, a diamond into your toenail. Yeah, exactly. Like, unimaginable pain. Yeah. Whereas I can fight you off <laughs> whereas yeah, they have no, a tortoise have can't no way to fight it off all they can do is shrink inside their shell and accept it or try and bite Which, you but well don't know what they're, yeah i don't know if they would <laughs> oh they can snap but mm. yeah it was just needlessly cruel that's unfortunately becoming a theme isn't it in dark academia yeah which I'm I'm not okay with. Mm. Is it time for the question? It is. 
Is it Dark Academia? No. No, it's not. I can see um, the campus novel um, elements and the precursor and I can see how it links. Yeah, there are definitely lots of elements that lead that would lead on to like a Dark Academia exploration, discovery, discussion, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not Dark Academia as we know it. No. So we are reaching the penultimate episode of season five which is scary how did we manage that (laughs) so next episode we will be looking at the cloisters by katie hayes Anne stillwell arrives in new york city hoping to spend a summer working at the metropolitan museum of art instead she is signed to the cloisters a gothic museum and garden renowned for its medieval and renaissance collections there she is drawn into a small circle of charismatic but enigmatic researchers each with their own secrets and desires, including the museum's curator, Patrick Rowland, who is convinced that the history of tarot holds the key to unlocking contemporary fortune-telling. Relieved to have left her troubled past behind and eager for the approval of her new colleagues, Anne is only too happy to indulge in some of Patrick's more outlandish theories. But when Anne discovers a mysterious, once-thought-lost deck of 15th-century Italian tarot cards, she suddenly finds herself at the centre of a dangerous game of power, toxic friendship and ambition and as the game being played within the cloisters spirals out of control Anne must decide whether she is truly able to defy the cards and shape her own future bringing together the modern and the arcane the cloisters is a rich thrillingly told tale of obsession and the ruthless pursuit of power i am so looking forward (laughs) to this book this is one of my most anticipated debuts of this year And I feel like I've been waiting so long to read it. (laughs) So I am incredibly ready. I mean, anything that's got tarot and I'm there. Yeah. And New York. I'm there. I'm there. Mm. Cannot wait. So we really hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you have any thoughts about Brideshead Revisited, we would love to know. And if you want to sign up to our mailer, you can do so at thedarkacademicalsbookclub.substack.com. We would appreciate any likes, subscribes, follows, whatever your podcast listening platform allows, we would welcome because it really does help us out. And we will speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.